0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Please be seated. And if you would turn your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John
1: chapter 2, as Andrew reads to us, First John chapter 2, starting verse 18. First John chapter two, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his, excuse me, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The word of the Lord.
0: Good morning. morning. Thank you, Angie, for reading, Worship Team for leading us. We are going to get right into that passage, so please turn to First John if you didn't. Uh, I also wanted to ask you to pray, be praying this week for our middle school students. Uh, If you notice, there seems to be a dearth of middle schoolers. (laughs) It's because they're up at Hidden Acres, our district's uh, camp up in Dayton, uh, Iowa. And um, Pastor Andrew's up there, he took uh, some of our youth leaders, and they took like seven or eight uh, junior high students, middle school students who are up there at, at, uh, at Hidden Acres for the Winter Blast Retreat. That's always a good one. Um, not that the other ones aren't, but we have found in our church's ministry that students really respond to that Winter Blast Retreat. So when you think of your church this week, uh, remember to pray for them. Pray for those junior high students that some of those things that they learned this week will take, take root in their hearts. I know that they would appreciate it and Andrew would appreciate it for sure if you'd be praying for them. So, uh, yeah, let's do that right now. Oh, actually, I was also going to just remind folks that we are uh, sharing the Lord's Supper today. So if you, hopefully you got one of these little uh, cups when you came in. If you did not, we will bring you one. And if you're worshiping with us online, we encourage you to participate with us. Uh, Go get some crackers and some juice, even, even now here at the beginning of the sermon or when we get to that point in the service so that you can participate there at home as well. So we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper together after the sermon. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the chance to, to come together to worship you this morning. What a joy, what a privilege to, to fellowship, to learn, and but most of all to glorify the King, to praise our God and our Savior. And uh, we would just, in that spirit of gratitude and in that spirit of worship, we would ask you now to lead us as we study this passage. There is, uh, like Lee was saying, a lot of rich stuff in this passage this morning. And I would ask that you'd help me to communicate it clearly so we come away from this passage with a better sense of of what you're saying here and what it means for us. And then, Lord, we invite you to just apply one or two things that each one of us really especially needs to hear this morning so that our lives are changed a little bit more by your word working in us this morning. So we thank you. We look to you now as our teacher, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we don't think about it a whole lot, but counterfeiting... Counterfeiting is a big problem in the world. Now, of course, when I use the word counterfeiting, we probably think of money. You think of money first of all, and with good reason. Uh, counterfeit money is, is definitely a, a thing. Uh, I've read this week that according to the U.S. Treasury, so the department of our government that keeps track of money, uh, according to the U.S. Treasury, there are somewhere between 70 million and in counterfeit money in circulation right now. So everybody's going to go open their purses and wallets and look. Is that, is that legit? <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing. I know I was on my way home from picking up my son, at, our, our son at college several weeks ago. And uh, I, we went to a convenience store. And I was shocked when I, I paid for my candy bar or whatever with my $20 bill. And, and the guy took this pen out. and he. Did the magic pen thing. I was like, hey, wait a minute. And and then I thought, well, it makes sense, right? He doesn't want me passing bad money. And so it's a real thing, right? Counterfeit money is a real thing. Uh, There's other kind of counterfeits, though. There's counterfeit drugs. Uh, That's actually a big problem, both legal and illegal, that cause all kinds of damage when, when there are counterfeit pharmaceuticals or counterfeit drugs. Uh, counterfeit luxury items, you run into those. If you've ever visited a a big city and somebody offered you a Rolex watch for, you know, $10, uh, I don't mean to disappoint you, but that probably was a counterfeit. Probably wasn't an actual Rolex watch. Uh, I was reading just the other day that now counterfeit masks are a problem. Those N95 masks that they kind of tell us are the gold standard if you're gonna wear a mask. Uh, People have been counterfeiting those now. And so I saw at least two articles in the last week that was telling me how to make sure my N95 mask is is authentic, that it's not a counterfeit. Here's another one to watch for. We also have to watch out for counterfeit doctrine. Counterfeit doctrine. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how followers of Jesus Christ need to guard ourselves against the danger of counterfeit doctrine. That's the warning. Our passage starts with a warning, and it controls all the rest of the passage. It's a basic warning there in the first two verses. Uh, We'll work through. Uh, We are studying, if you're visiting today, we're studying through 1 John. I didn't pick this passage today for some special reason. This is the next passage in our study through 1 John. And so we're looking at verses, so so I'll start with verse 18 here. We have this fundamental warning in verses 18 and 19. Uh, John writes, children, so there's that term of endearment again that we've been talking about. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, uh, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So he starts with this warning. And and there are two terms there, two key terms, and we have to know what he means by them, or else none of it makes sense. Uh, So we have to explain them. The first term is Antichrist. He says Antichrist. You've heard Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Plural. Many Antichrists are already here, he says. Now, depending on your background and uh, whether you grew up in a church and what kind of a church you grew up in, uh, you may have thought a lot about this word, right? You read a whole novel series based on this word, maybe. Or maybe you've never thought about this word at all. You're like, Antichrist, what's that? That's a strange word. Uh, so let's talk about it just a little bit. For all the attention it gets, this word is actually rare in the Bible. It's only used five times in the Bible, and they're all in the New Testament. In fact, they're all in John. The author of this book is the only one who uses the term Antichrist. He only uses it five times, and he only uses it in the letters. And so, four of them are in this letter, 1 John. Three of them are in today's passage, so three of the five occurrences of the word Antichrist in the Bible are in today's passage. There's another one in chapter four, and then there's one more in 2 John, much shorter letter, 2 John chapter one, verse seven. So it's only used five times, but there's variety. So it's used five times, but we can identify three different ways it's used, All right? So let me just tell you real quick what they are, and, and we'll decide which one we're talking about in this passage. So sometimes, one of the ways Antichrist is used is it's used to talk about a spirit. So a spirit that's in the world. A spirit. And what is Antichrist? It's Antichrist. It's against Jesus. And so a spirit in the world that is opposed to Jesus Christ. John, in uh, chapter 4, we'll look at it in a few weeks in more detail, Uh, but 1 John 4, 3 talks about a spirit of Antichrist. So it's a spirit that defies or denies or is opposed to Jesus. Uh, So that's one way you could use it, to describe a spirit. Another way to to use it is to talk about a person. And if you have thought a lot about this term, this is probably the one you thought of. It's a person, a specific person, a a great, put that in quote, great leader uh, at the very end of human history who will lead a great rebellion against Jesus, or the final rebellion against Jesus. Uh, We kind of usually refer to that person as the Antichrist, and actually, John mentions him. He mentions this figure, doesn't tell us anything about him in this passage, but he mentions him in verse 18. Uh, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. He uses the singular, and I, and I, would, I would argue that, that he's talking about that end times figure you can read about in the book of Revelation. And, and then the third way the word is used is it's used in a general sense and in a broad sense to talk about false teachers who have that same spirit we talked about before, that spirit that's anti. Christ, that spirit that's opposed to Jesus. That's, and so he talks about antichrists. And that's the one you have in the second part of verse 18. Uh, he says, you have heard antichrist is coming. So he kind of reminds them of teaching about the end days. Uh, but then he says, but so now many antichrists have already come. Right? So he's not talking there about the end of the age. Now he's talking about what they were going through right now in their church. At that time, there were people who had been part of their church who were opposed to Jesus, John calls them, antichrists. So we're not going to talk today about the antichrist and the Tim LaHaye books and the movies you might have seen and the Book of Revelation. We're not talking about any of that because that's not what he's talking about. He says, yeah, you've heard about the antichrist, but I want to talk to you about the antichrists, these false teachers who stand in opposition to Jesus. He, the other term he uses, so antichrist, we've got to know what we're talking about. The other term he uses is the last hour, well, surely we're going to talk about the end times now, right? I mean, he's talking about the last hour. So, so he says that. He says, uh, children, it is the last hour. What does he mean? What's he talking about? And he says it again at the end of that verse. He says, therefore, we know it's the last hour, because all these antichrists are there. So what are we talking about? And the answer, quite simply, is that we're talking about now. What's the last hour? Well, in John's use of the term, the last hour is everything that's happened since Jesus ascended into heaven right up until this moment, and it'll keep going right until the moment when Jesus comes back. That's what he mean means when he says, last hour. It's, it's all of that. And that, that might seem strange to us, especially because of how we think about time. Right? So think about how we think about time. Um, it, it's probably because our lives are relatively short, but we think in little chunks of time. And so we, we talk, you know, if, if I talk about a decade that feels like a huge chunk of time to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, 10 years ago. You know, Facebook will put up, you know, here's your memory from 12 years ago. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that was so long ago. Or, or we talk about generations, right? Uh, media people and sociologists love to obsess about Generation X and Generation Y and Generation Z. And, and, and sometimes we might talk about centuries. And that's a big time to us. You know, there's all, we talk about all the different centuries that have passed. The Bible, though, is not impressed with my perspective and your perspective on time. The Bible has just two periods that it talks about. As far as God is concerned, there's just really two periods in all of human history. There's before Jesus and since Jesus. And that's how the Bible talks about time. That's really what's God, what, what God's care about. Uh, it's, it's everything in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament builds up to the ministry of the Messiah. And Jesus comes and he does what he does. And then everything since... The New Testament, you'll see these different phrases, the last hour, the last days, uh, these kinds of different terms are used, and they're all talking about everything that's happened from the beginning of the book of Acts right up until now, and will continue until Jesus comes back. And so when John says it's the last hour, he's talking about now. So that's why I say this is a warning for you and me. This isn't just for them, and they went through some particularly difficult time where some especially ungodly people rose up, and they were the antichrist. He's saying, hey, church, until Jesus comes back, you've got to pay attention to this one. You've got to guard yourself against the danger of counterfeit doctrine, false doctrine, false teaching, right up until the day when Jesus comes back. So the rest of the passage, so it applies very specifically to these people. John's writing this letter to and. Oh, what did I tell you? 90, 85 to 90 AD. But it applies to you and me too. We have to pay attention to this morning just as much as they did. And so the rest of the passage, verses 20 through 27, shows us how to do that. And that brings us to the outline I want to take you through, which is just four defenses. I want to take you through these verses by showing you four defenses that we have. John tells us you have these four things you can do to protect yourself. To protect yourself, protect your family, protect your church, from counterfeit doctrine. Four defenses that we have to do that. So, number one, our first defense against counterfeit doctrine is to know the truth well. Know the truth well. That's where it starts. If you want to defend yourself against the lies, you need to know the truth. That's verses 20 and 21. And so he says, But you have been anointed. So they left. right? So there's a contrast he's going to make. Those false teachers left; those antichrists, they went out from us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So this is what protected them. Basically, he says in verse 20, you folks know better. You know better, he says to his readers. Because remember, he's writing to the ones who stay John's not a, the word is polemical. He's not writing a polemical letter against the false teachers. They're gone. He's not talking to them. He's talking to the people who stayed. That's why he says, they went out from us. They're gone now. Uh, The the false teachers are gone. And so how have you stayed? He's reminding them. So really what you have here is an encouragement. You folks stayed. You've hung with the truth. How How have they stayed? He talks about a couple things. He says, you've been anointed. And what he's talking about there is the Holy Spirit. He says, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and the anointing is, is the Holy Spirit. I think that's the right way to take it. He's talking about the anointing or the filling of the Holy Spirit that happens when we're born again. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and then we, we walk with the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Holy Spirit within us. They, they have the Holy Spirit within them. Uh, and then he, he tells us who did the anointing, just so we're clear. The Father did. He says, uh, you were anointed by the Holy One, And you you could make the case that he's talking about kind of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You could make that case. But I think it makes more sense to take it as simply talking about the Father. Because that's how Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John. So the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 26, is I think a key verse on this issue. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And so who sends the Holy Spirit into the lives of believers? It's the Father, John 14, 26. So how have they managed to avoid the false doctrines that these folks were teaching? Well, the Holy Spirit lives within them. They are born again. The Holy Spirit lives within them. The Father sent them. And because they have the Holy Spirit within them, look what he says. He says, you have all knowledge. Or, no, that's actually not what he says. He says, you all, you all have knowledge. You all have knowledge. He says this for a reason. It's actually kind of an emphatic. He doesn't have to have the word all there. He could just say, you have knowledge. And so it's emphatic, or he's really stressing it. And what he's doing is he's actually countering the false teachers. See, the, we're, we're pretty sure, and this actually still happens today, that these false teachers were basically saying, you got to get it from us. Right? You got to buy our tape set. You got to read our book. You got to watch our TV show. You, that's, we're the ones who have the truth. You have to get it from us. And John says, no, you, you all have knowledge. You all have access to the truth. You don't need, it from, you don't need the special secret knowledge from the special secret false teachers. Uh, you have it already. Therefore, they know the truth. Right? That's verse 27, or excuse me, 21. Uh, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do. Right? So this is all part of this, this, this encouragement. He's commending them in verses 20 and 21. Uh, You are on the right course. You stayed. You know the truth. And that's what protected you from falling, from from going astray. So here's the defense part of this, right? Here's how this defends us. Uh, It defends, so what's he talking about when he talks about the truth? He's talking about God's word, right? So here's the defense. The defense is to know the Bible. That's the defense. When we say know the truth well, we're talking about scripture. He's talking about scripture when he says uh, know the truth See, John is not arguing. You could really twist some of these verses here in John if you, do, if you read them outside of the context. He's not arguing for personal knowledge. Right? He's not arguing for personal, subjective think or right. And he's not saying that all of our opinions are equally valid, right? The person who's saying it all. What he's saying is you and I all have access. We all have access to the truth in God's word. We all have access to that. And so if we're going to walk in the truth, like he talks about here, right? If we're going to cling to the truth, then we need to know the word well. So what he's advocating for here is is a word-centered Christian life. You all have knowledge because you hold fast to the truth. Let's speak plainly for just a moment in terms of our defense against counterfeit doctrines. What do we have that will protect us from getting led astray by the false teachers in our own age? if a church, I think it all starts with the church you go to, right? It really does. If a church is not teaching and preaching the Bible, that church is not worth your time. Amen. I really want to stress that. Now, of course, I'm preaching to the choir. You're here, right? You're, you're all here a little bit, and that's really important to us, to preach and teach from the Bible. But, but think about this. The time may come when you need to move. Right? Maybe you're, you, you go off to college and you need to find a, a, a church now that you're going to go to. Or your work transfers you and you move to another community. Or, or you retire and you're going to go move closer to the grandkids and so you need to find a new church. Or, or you just get sick of me and you want to go somewhere else. And, and that's legit. That's fine. You know, whatever your reason, you, you're looking for a new church. You need to find a new church. How are you going to make that decision? How are you going to approach it? Well, make sure, my advice to you, my counsel to you, young and old alike, is to find a church where this is at the top. And so, if you have to choose, if you have to choose between a church, let's, let's speak where we live, if you have to choose between a church where you hate the music, right, you hate the music, they don't sing the new ones or the old ones or whatever it is you like, but they preach the Bible... And a church where you love the music. It's like you pick the song list every week. You love the music, but they don't preach the Bible. To protect yourself, choose the one that preaches the Bible. If you have to choose between a church that has an ugly building, or they meet in a storefront, or it's a, it's, it's, they meet in a school and it takes six hours to set it up every Sunday and they want you to be on the chair committee. <laughs> but they preach the Bible. And your other choice is a, a church where it's beautiful they got stained glass and coffee bars and it's beautiful, it's just wondrous but they don't preach the Bible choose the one that preaches the Bible that's how we're going to defend ourselves from these counterfeit doctrines these false teachings that's one of our very best defenses that's defense number one number two uh, our second defense is to know the lies well so we need to know the truth well but we also need to know the lies we need to know what's at stake we haven't talked about that yet Now we're going to talk about it. What is it that we're defending ourselves against? What is it John's so worried about in this letter? Well, he's going to start to explain to us more in verses 22 and 23. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So he's told us there's danger, he's told us there's liars, he's called them liars earlier in the book. Now he, he, he comes out and he says, it. well, who is the liar? How are you going to know? How are you going to tell? How do you know whether someone is, is lying to you, telling you falsehoods in a doctrinal sense? How do you know who the doctrinal liar is? Well, he says, here you go, here's the test. The test is the liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ hence the term antichrist, right? He, he, so actually he's going to define it to us now, for us in verse 22. Uh, someone is coming, if someone is coming to you in a spirit of, of antichrist, that person is someone who's denying, he says it, Jesus is the Christ. But he, he means more by that than you think. Right? He, he's going to flesh it out for us a little bit. It's not just a denial that Jesus is the Christ, it's also a denial of the relationship between the Father and the Son, That's the end of verse 22. This is the Antichrist, fills in some more of his definition. It's the one who denies the Father and the Son. And then he explains that statement in verse 23. uh, No one who denies Jesus has the Father. So you can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus without the Father or the Father without Jesus. They go together. And you get snapshots here. I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to reconstruct what the false teacher's the specific sect in his in this book was, was teaching, but we're pretty sure they were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully God and that he was somehow subservient to or subordinate to uh, to, to the Father in terms of equality. Uh, but you can't—they they go together. They, they, you cannot have—you can't deny Jesus and still have the Father. And this comes straight from Jesus. John's not making stuff up here. This isn't new theology. It comes straight from Jesus. John 14 verses 8 and 9. Uh, you'll remember the passage it's on uh, it's at the last supper and jesus is explaining to the disciples he's the way uh, the way of the truth and the life he's just said that i'm going to go to be with the father and and finally philip one of the apostles kind of loses it a little bit He says lord show us the father show us the father and that will be enough for us we don't understand a lot of what you're saying but just show us the father and jesus answered philip don't you know me philip Don't you know me, Philip, (laughs) even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. That's John's key, and right off of that right here in in verse 23. If you want to know the Father, you have to know Jesus. There's no other way. And if you deny Jesus, you don't know the Father. You might think you do. You might think you do, but if you deny Jesus and what the Bible says about Jesus, you don't know the Father. And that actually gets me to the question I want to answer here. The question is, what... Is he talking about? Right, so he says that here's the spirit of Antichrist, it's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Well, okay, what, is that, what does that look like? Did I just got to have those words in my statement of faith, you know, Jesus is the Christ, is that good enough? Or is he talking about something bigger? I submit to you, he's talking about something bigger. He's actually talking about two things, and I take this from the whole letter. It's, it's the context of the letter. What... What issues, what practices does John focus on here in 1 John? Well, it's two big issues. It's the person of Jesus, and it's following Jesus. And so someone who denies the truth, what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and what it takes to follow him or what's involved in following him, anyone who denies the truth about either one of those is operating in the spirit of Antichrist. So let's just take each of those in turn for a couple minutes here. Start with the person. So, what is the truth about the person of Jesus? Well, the big one that John emphasizes is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's both. He's holy God, right? W H O L L Y. He's completely God. He's also holy God, H O L Y. But he's he's completely God, fully God. But and, and, and he emphasizes this. He emphasizes it at the beginning of the letter. We, we talked about that in the introductory sermon. Uh, Jesus is equal to the Father. He was with him in the beginning. Was, he's not created in any sense. And so Jesus is fully God. But then in the same paragraph, John emphasized. Go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He emphasized he's, he's human just like us. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. He, he was just like us in every way except the sin. Remember, we talked about that, except for the sin. And if, that's a big emphasis in this letter. We're pretty sure it was the, the, uh, these false teachers were denying one or both of those. And, and that's his point. If we get one or the other of those wrong, we, we, are, we are falling into not minor error. We're falling into major serious error if we deny that basic uh, teaching about the nature of the person of Jesus, who Jesus is. John also is going to talk a good bit in this letter about the work of Jesus, and that's the other part of this. Right? Jesus, uh, he tells us, is the only way to be saved. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, Jesus is the, the propitiation for our sins, uh, the, the atoning sacrifice, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And when we looked at that verse, we, we talked about how that means uh, Jesus is the only way for anyone. To be saved. He's not just kind of Christian saviors and other people get saved other ways. He's the only way for anyone to be saved. That's a core teaching of this book about the person and ministry of Jesus. If anybody denies either of those or any of that, right, if anything denies those things about Jesus, that person, John would say, John does say that person is operating in the spirit of Antichrist. They might be really nice. They they might have lots of degrees, they might have lots of Instagram followers, they may have written lots of books, but if somebody says there are other ways to heaven that don't go through Jesus, or if somebody says that Jesus wasn't really God, he was just a really good person, you know, he's not really God, he's just a really good person, then that person is pushing a lie. That's the warning, that person is pushing a counterfeit doctrine. And so know those are the things we're watching for. Right? We're not talking about kind of when you, you, know, the timing of the return of Jesus or you know, some of these secondary or tertiary doctrines. We're talking about core stuff. Someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the person and, and work of Jesus. The other way, though, and I'm taking this again from context, from the emphasis of the letter, the other way somebody can deny that Jesus is the Christ is by denying the truth about following him. Right? The truth about following Jesus. And so, for example, if someone says that the Christian life is, is supposed to be all sunshine and roses, right? this is where a lot of the false doctrines creep in today, especially into evangelical churches. You know, God just wants you to be prosperous. That's what he wants. He just, you know, he just wants you to be healthy, happy, happy by the world's standard of happiness. Uh, and, and if you're not, that's your fault. If somebody tells you that, they are not telling you the truth, because that is not what Jesus said. That does not line up with what Jesus said about following Jesus. They're not telling you the truth. Uh, Jesus said that following him means denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Remember that? Anyone who would follow after me must deny himself and take up his cross and come after me. Uh, Which means Jesus calls us uh, to die to ourselves, not to glorify ourselves. And So much of what we hear today is inviting us to glorify ourselves. But they're not telling us the truth when they tell us that. So, know the truth well, but know the lies well. Know what's at stake here. Know what kinds of issues we're talking about. They have to do with the person of Jesus and the nature of following Jesus. Defense number three, our third defense against counterfeit doctrine, uh, is to stick close to biblical doctrine. Stick close to biblical doctrine. If you want to stay away from the false stuff, stay close to the true stuff. Now, I mentioned... uh, a couple of times now in this series, uh, that John, John does a lot of repeating. It's one of the things that makes this book a little challenging to study. Uh, he, he, he likes to go back to things he's said already and say them in a different way it's for reinforcement. And it's just, it's just his writing style as much as anything. And that's what he does in verses 24 and 25. So in verses 24 and 25, he kind of circles back to verses 20 and 21. And it's not, he doesn't say exactly the same thing, but it's, it's very similar. It's the same topic, anyway. Uh, so this is, let's look at 24 and 25. He says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So, John uses the word abide. We're going to focus in on another key word. He uses the word abide uh, three times, there in verse uh, 20, uh verse 24, and then he's actually going to use it two more times, the Greek word abide here, he uses it two more times in verse 27, so that's five times same word, five times in four different verses, or four verses, and uh, that makes it important, right, so it's a key word, so let's zoom in on it this word, it may well be familiar if you've you've, uh, spent some time in the New Testament, it's the same word Jesus uses in John John, there we are again, Uh, I've told you, there's lots of connections between the Gospel of John and 1 John Uh, In John chapter 15, uh, again, it's that night before Jesus goes to the cross, and he says this, gives the the, the disciples this beautiful picture of a vine and branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. And then he tells them, abide in me. Same word John's going to use here. You abide in me, and I will abide in you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you, some translations say. And that's what that word means. The word means to remain, or stay, or continue. Continue. And so it's, it's the idea of, of staying in the same place, right? You're not wandering away, you know, like a toddler at the beach that might want to do. And you're, you're staying put. You're remaining. You're abiding. You're, you're consistently remaining in whatever the object is. And so it's this idea of, of, of um, relationship, of communion, of staying is, is all part of this word. And so verse 24, uh, he says, Let what you heard from the beginning do that. Let what you heard from the beginning, that truth you heard from the beginning, let that stay in you. Right? Don't wander, don't, don't, get it, don't let it get away from you, instead stay close to it. That's where, where he starts. And again, this is the connection back to verse 21, because what he's talking about is the truth. He's talking about the truth of scripture, right? Stick close to the truth. Again, I said it before, if you want to stay away from the bad stuff, stick close to the good stuff. That's what he's saying here. Then it connects it to our relationship with God. This is a big one. Uh, if you stay close to the truth, you will stay close to God. It's verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And so, and he's, so he's not talking about getting saved here. He's talking about the experience of, of the Christian life. Right? Living, with, living with God. If you want to have a healthy, vibrant, life-giving relationship with God, stick close to the truth. that's what he says there in in that verse. Let the truth abide in you. So what does that look like? Okay, remain in in him, remain in the truth. What What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, two things to say about it. The first is real quick, because it's just a repeat of point one. Stick close to the Bible. Stick close to Scripture, because this is where we learn the truth well. He's been developing this from the beginning of the letter, when he started with the Word, right? The, the, the Word, which is, is, is Jesus, but there's this extra of it here, right? He's been talking to us about that. Um, it's not in the intro, actually, but it's in that, in that first section. And so stick close to the Scripture, because this is where we learn the truth. But then the second thing that we, we need to say here is that sticking close to the Bible also means sticking close to biblical doctrine, biblical doctrine. So it's not just stick close to the Bible in the sense that we, uh, we read it on a regular basis, right? We, you, you, we read two or three chapters every morning, and we're all good, that kind of thing. That's very important. I, I very much recommend that. But he's talking about teachings, right? So, so it's also stick close to the, to the Bible, to the truth, in the sense of sticking close to what it actually teaches, what it actually, the actual doctrine. So stick close to sound biblical doctrine. It's really important. There is a tendency uh, in the modern church to downplay it, right? to downplay the importance of doctrine, it, at least in some circles. Some places really downplay it. And, and I will just uh, agree here that uh, it's possible to go the other way, right? It's possible to emphasize doctrine too much and to become rigid and cold and lifeless about doctrine. And that's not helpful either. That doesn't help anybody. You just turn ourselves into hard hearted Pharisees when we overemphasize doctrine. But at the same time, doctrine does matter. What we believe matters, which means statements of faith matter. Right? Again, I'm thinking about those of you who might find yourselves going somewhere else someday or needing to, right? Statements of faith matter. Uh, they matter. I've noticed this. Maybe some of you have noticed this, but I'll bet you have. I'm sure you have. Uh, sometimes it's almost like churches are hiding their statements of faith. Have you ever noticed this? You know, maybe you're on vacation and you're like, hey, honey, let's go to a a church this morning. All right, well, we don't want to waste our time. Let's find one that's a good one. And so you go on their website and you start poking around. What do they teach at this church? And and you can't find it a lot of times, right? Sometimes you just can't find it. You you go to the About Us section, right? That makes sense, About Us. I'm sure they'll tell me what they believe there. And no, it's all about the coffee bar and what you don't have to wear to the worship service that morning. (laughs) They they won't tell you what they believe. And it's hard, you know, Maybe they just need a better website. Maybe they just need a, a better web designer and it's just a bad design. But, but you start to wonder if, if sometimes they aren't hiding it. Right? Maybe they're hiding it because they're embarrassed. I worry about that one. You know, well, that wouldn't be very good outreach. If people know we, uh, we believe in hell, well, they might not come to our church, so we better not put that up there. Or worse, I think this is worse, they, they just think it doesn't matter. Right. Somebody asks you, what do you believe? Oh, well, we believe some stuff. You, know, you don't, don't, don't worry yourself about it. The pastor knows it. It's fine. It's good. I don't think John would like that. I think John would disagree with that approach. Uh, doctrine's important, he says. Statements of faith matter. A- and, and they matter because they protect us. Right? Back to this idea of sticking close to biblical doctrine. Sound biblical doctrine protects us from the dangers of counterfeit doctrine. Right? You have to know what you believe, if you're going to stick close to it. So that's defense number three. Stick close to sound biblical doctrine. Finally, number four, defense number four against counterfeit doctrine is to stick close to Jesus. Stick close to the Lord himself. And, and that's where this, this uh, lands in verses 26 and 27. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing, here he is repeating again, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. So verse 26 summarizes uh, what he was just talking about. Right? It's a reminder of what's at stake. There are people who want to deceive you. Right? So that's, excuse me, that's what I'm writing to you about. I'm writing to you about these people who are trying to deceive you. And it's a warning and it's equipping, which is how we've approached this this morning. He's equipping them and us to defend ourselves. Uh, and then he says, uh, Those who are trying to deceive you, well, he's talking about those false teachers. That's probably obvious, but let's just be clear about it. He's talking about the Antichrists that he was talking about back in verses 18 and 19. And so, again, the issues are issues about Jesus. We're not talking about good faith disagreements about secondary or third, third level doctrines. We're talking about the core stuff. About Jesus, there are people who intentionally or unintentionally—maybe it's the devil of, maybe it's the devil behind it—but they're trying to deceive you. So that's the reminder in verse 26. Now he comes back to the anointing in verse 27. It just reminds him, hey, you've got that anointing, you've got the Holy Spirit. God Himself abides in you. He says He lives within you. It was if there's that word abide, same one we looked at in verse 24. And so there's an encouragement here. The Holy Spirit, he's not going to wander away from you. He's not going to take a vacation. He's he's, he's with you all the time. He abides in you. He stays close to you. And then he makes this puzzling statement for us. He says, that's why you don't need any teaching. (laughs) You don't need anyone to teach you, he says. You have no need that anyone should teach you because you have this anointing. Now, on the surface, uh, that sounds like he's saying we're all just on our own. Right? I, I should you know, go to my office, write you a little resignation letter, and leave. Right, We, we, we don't need anybody to teach us. We, we don't need that. We can just figure it out on our own because we have the Holy Spirit. If you think about it, though, that cannot be what John is saying. That really cannot be what John is saying because what is he doing as he writes them this letter? He's teaching them, right? He's teaching them the truth. He's teaching them scriptures. So when he says you don't need anyone to teach you, he doesn't mean, he can't mean, stop reading this letter throw it away, and, and you don't need any, anything that I'm saying to you. So he, he, that's, that's not what he means when he says that. So what does he mean? Well, if we read it in the context, these false teachers, these antichrists who were trying to lead them astray in terms of their teaching about Jesus, I think the answer when he says you don't need anyone to teach you is he's saying you don't need, it, you don't need this new teaching. You don't need new teaching. You already have what you need. You don't need anything added to this. You already have what you need right here. This is what you need to know about Jesus. Not the latest fun doctrine to come along from this this new person that's come along. You have what you need. So that's what he's talking about when he says you don't. It's not that we don't all need to sit under teaching. We need to know the truth well, so we're sitting under the right teaching. But he's not saying we don't need teaching. He's saying we don't need new revelation. We don't need new teaching. And that's true for us. That's just as true for us as it was for them in the first century. We do not need new teaching about Jesus. We just need Jesus. We just need Jesus, which is where he lands it, right? So his language is very flowery. For time's sake, I won't go through every clause. But where it all lands is, abide in him. Because you have the truth, because you know these things, because the Spirit lives within you, abide in him. Abide in him. If you want to stay away from false doctrine, stick close to Jesus himself. Uh, what does that look like? How do we do that? How do we stick close to Jesus? Well, it's not glamorous. I mean, it's, it's joyful, but it's not glamorous, which is probably why we struggle with it. Uh, it's just discipleship. It's, it's discipleship, or sometimes, we, uh, to use an even uh, harder word, uh, it's Discipline. Sometimes we, we call it spiritual discipline. That's how you stick close to Jesus. You, you do the things the scriptures tell us to do, to draw nearer to him, to, abide, to him, abide in him, to live with him. And so we spend time in his word. We do read you know, that, that time in scripture. We spend time in his word. Uh, we worship, both alone, private worship, but also corporate worship. We pray private prayer, but also corporate prayer. We fellowship together with other believers. We participate in, in the community of the church. Uh, we serve uh, in the name of Jesus. We serve those inside the church. We serve those outside of the church. These are all ways, and could go, I could take you to two or three verses for every one of those. Those are always to abide in Jesus, to, to live the God life in God, to live with God. That's what we're, we're told to do there. And so when we do that, say, what does that have to do with counterfeit doctrine? How do we we get there? Well, what what does that do when we abide in Jesus, when we do those things? It builds us up. It strengthens our faith. We are building spiritual muscles when we abide in Jesus. And when we build spiritual muscles, that makes us stronger. And when we're stronger spiritually, we're able to defend ourselves. And so abiding in Jesus builds us up, makes us strong, so that we can defend ourselves against those false doctrines. About a week and a half ago, a bridge collapsed in western Pennsylvania. It was actually in uh, Pittsburgh in the east side of the city, kind of as you're leaving the city. There's a picture of it up here and how clear that is with all that white snow. But this bridge collapsed. Uh, I think it was a Friday it collapsed. Uh, there were five vehicles, five vehicles on the bridge when it, when it gave out, when it collapsed. Thankfully, nobody died. They, they, it could have easily happened, but it just happened that um, nobody died. People were injured, I think I read 10 people were injured, a couple of them had to go to the hospital, but nobody died, and, but striking kind of a thing, right? They're driving over, they're, well, you can see there was a city bus on it, that's how that red thing is, and all of a sudden the bridge gave out beneath them and collapsed, and it's always kind of surprising and hopefully none of you have ever been in that sort of thing, but it's, it's a shocking thing to happen. It's surprising uh, because even, even to hear the story. I remember when I saw it that day, I was like, oh, whoa, I'm going to go read that story, right? I'm not going to read that one about the Fed. I don't understand that, but I'm going to, you know, oh, a bridge collapse. That's, that's something that gets your attention because bridges are supposed to stay up, right? Bridges aren't supposed to collapse, and so it's always kind of shocking and surprising when they collapse. In this case, though, people shouldn't have been surprised. People should not have been surprised. You see, it's come out in the week or so since it collapsed that there have been warnings about this bridge for years. Since at least 2014, state inspectors in Pennsylvania have been routinely flagging this bridge. They've filed reports, this is wrong, that's wrong, this needs to be fixed as soon as possible, and they filed these reports, and I guess they all went straight into the filing cabinet. I guess, because nothing was ever done. Uh, four years ago, 2018, you say, well, those are just, you know, bureaucrats. Uh, in 2018, this guy was taking a walk, and uh, just a private citizen, and he went underneath. You can see it's kind of a wooded area. He went underneath this bridge, and he saw one of the major support beams. I'm not an engineer, but they called it an X-beam. One of the X-beams was completely rusted through, You could see the cables that were inside of it, but the beam was completely rusted through. He took a picture of it, put it on Twitter. People started retweeting it, liking it, all those things you can do, trying to get the, the state authorities to pay some attention. Again, nothing happened. Nobody did anything, despite all that attention. And they all figured it was fine, right? What's the big deal? What's the worry? Everything's working great. The bridge is working great. Right up until the day it did. Right up until the day the bridge collapsed. You and I have a responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen to us. And I'm not talking about bridges anymore, right? We're talking about uh, about doctrine, defending ourselves from, from false doctrine. Because the worst thing a collapsed bridge can do is take your earthly life. But false doctrine, counterfeit teachings, that can lead to eternity in hell. It can really, really ruin us forever. So use those defenses. Use your defenses. Know the truth well. Know the lies well. Stick close to biblical doctrine. And maybe most important of all, stick close to Jesus, cling to Jesus, and he will cling to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the promises in this text and the challenges and the warnings. We need these warnings. Uh, We pray that you will um, make us stronger in this. Uh, Help us to remember that, that when we're studying scripture together and on our own, uh, yes, there's absolutely the part about you feeding us and encouraging us and, um, you know, given us courage and strength for the hard times we face and, and all of that, it's all so important. But it's also about this, it's about making sure we know the truth so that when somebody on, on social media or somebody on television or somebody maybe at a church we might visit uh, says something that's not true and, and not just a, a good faith disagreement, but something that's, that's in error on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, Help us to know, to, to, to be well acquainted with the truth and with the scriptures that we are able to, to be sound, to stand strong, to be firm in you. And we pray that you would be doing in that. Uh, Lord, as we come to your table now, we're going to get to celebrate uh, the, the source, the, the, the foundation of our salvation as we remember the cross. Uh, I would just want to ask that you would prepare our hearts for that. If there is any sin that we've committed, that we have harbored, in in secret from you. We've kept from you. uh, We've um, just haven't repented of it. I pray that you would bring it to mind now that we might uh, confess those things to you and be done with them so that we might come to your table with the consciences that are cleansed and clear. And Lord, if there's any here uh, today who uh, have not given their lives to you, I pray that you would be moving in them by your spirit. There is no words I can say, but you are the one who does the the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of conviction. That is a work of your Holy Spirit, and we invite you to do it uh, in the heart of of anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, to show them their desperate need for the Savior. And uh, we all desperately need the Savior, and so we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we come to the table now.